This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today for my 290th podcast is Stony Brook University history professor Nancy Toms to discuss medical consumerism or patients as consumers, or as her 2016 book, Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers, states how American medicine has become the predicament that it is today. Professor Toms, welcome to the program. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Professor Tom's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, U.S. healthcare policy over the past several decades has increasingly defined the public and patients as medical consumers. For example, healthcare advertising is today a $22 billion annual business. Pharmaceuticals spend $1 billion monthly in direct-to-consumer advertising, and hospitals about half as much. Over the past two years, federal policymakers have instituted regulations requiring both hospitals and commercial health plans to make pricing information public. Similarly, there has been increasing efforts to publicly report quality performance information. The question begged is to what extent have efforts to define or accept patients as consumers been successful or even legitimate? In remaking the American patient, winner of the prestigious Columbia University Bancroft Prize, Professor Toms described how over the past century, the public or patients have increasingly been defined as medical consumers and evaluates whether medical consumerism or medicine as a commercial product has legitimately served the public or patient's best interests and transformed American healthcare for the better. So with that as background or introduction, uh, Professor, I think it might be useful here, uh, sort of somewhat of a generic question. Uh, could you uh, uh, explain what prompted you or answer what prompted you to write this book? It started with an interest in advertising and its impact on the public's attitudes about their health. And once I started to go down that particular rabbit hole, it got me thinking much more uh, systematically about how we come to think of medical care as as a service that gets valued, uh, that gets a price put upon it. And uh, that kind of started me thinking about the concept of the patient as someone spending money for a service and how that has been uh, understood and uh, lamented over the last 100 years of, of American medicine without, I'm sad to say, a lot of uh, progress, think toward the, the real values of creating a more patient-centered medicine of which I am, you know, uh, who could argue that they're not in favor of that? But um, using the concept of patient as consumer as it has been spun over the last 30 some odd years, uh, in my opinion, has not advanced that goal. So I was trying to understand what went wrong. Um, and I'll admit one of the 
the issues that still startles me uh, and, me, and made me eager to talk to you again, the number of young uh, scholars I meet who believe that direct-to-consumer advertising was something that the American public asked for, um, when in fact it was an innovation that was resisted at all levels um, except large pharmaceutical companies. So I think it's really important to look at the, the history and understand how how conflicted uh, something like direct-to-consumer advertising was at its inception and that uh, the fact that it got legitimated and we now live with it uh, shouldn't disguise its, uh, its conflict-ridden origins. Okay, thank you. Um, the phrase you used, what went wrong, well, <laughs> that's really <laughs> what we want, want to get to here. So let's, let, let me move on. So we had a bit of back and forth on this, so let me just get this issue out of the way. So when we talk about patients or the public as consumers, again, this immediately gets at whether or not healthcare is, is a market commodity. Um, so let's, let's get that out of the way. So I'll read you the question before we get into yes. efforts to uh, productize medicine, which is what mm-hmm. essentially this is about. Before we get to those efforts to productize medicine, uh, for patient consumption, you're well aware of the inherent problem associated with defining me- a medical patient as a healthcare consumer, or as you term shopping problems relative to assuming uh, patients are healthcare consumers, a phrase you use in your conclusion So the question, why is defining medical care as a market commodity a problem? So if you could briefly, uh, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. So the concept of of a consumer commodity is one that the person makes intelligent choices among different products. Mm -hmm. And the theory behind this is that is the way you discipline the, you know, the hand of the marketplace so it goes in the right direction. Uh, Applying that kind of logic to healthcare um, is, is, is uh, faulty from the inception because it is not the patient directly choosing the product. It is the physician uh, okaying. Um, I mean, the essence of a prescription drug is that I, Nancy, cannot walk into CVS and ask for it. Um, although there's certainly been directions toward making it easier for Nancy to do that. But it, 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 the physician, what, what the really good stuff in medicine offers, a physician has to be your intermediary. So it is not a classic market relationship in any way, shape, or form. It's an a mediated relationship where the physician is the decider and the patient's uh, ability to exercise influence on what that physician has to offer is mediated um, and complicated. Yes, very, very complicated. So your book pretty much is a, is a history of really the last, let's just say generally last 100 years, the last century of how medicine evolved and was practiced. So I would like to have you explain, and this you could go on for an hour, I realize, but I would like, <laughs> I would like for you to explain just briefly, <laughs> how, did, how did the whole idea of medicine as a, as, a, as a consumable product or patients as consumer, I mean, there were legitimate reasons for the evolution of the idea. 
So if you could just, this is sort of the uh, stage setting uh, question, and then we can go to how all that became unbelievably uh, complicated, or as you said, we could explain how and why this largely went wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is an important aspect of the U.S. system as opposed to other uh, healthcare systems and, and concepts of medical professionalism in other um wealthy, industrializing, democratic nations in that in the United States, the medical profession uh, maintained for a long time a great deal more autonomy over deciding who would practice, how they would practice. Uh, They were allowed to set their own standards. What I saw as the genesis of of patient um, consumerism was a generation of largely middle-class professional men who in the 1920s and 1930s started questioning how physicians were preparing their bills and how they were charging for their services and the uh, disparities that they saw. So they were kind of coming in with the mindset of, yes, I should be a good consumer. I need to be able to choose between product A and product B. I need to see some efficiency. Uh, I mean, it's no mistake that a lot of the early consumer advocates were from an engineering background. They they wanted some, uh, what we would call <laughs> evidence-based variety. Mm-hmm tonsillectomy or not. Um, So a lot of the pressure for um, physicians to start showing the, to having more transparency in terms of the the recommendations they're making for more expensive products and procedures is coming from um, people concerned about their pocketbooks. And again, it's very important Um, with younger listeners to understand that this is still a medical economy where patients are paying directly for their care. There is no health insurance, um, what I'm talking about in the 1920s and 1930s. Mm -hmm. So these are direct pocketbook issues for middle class as well as working class Americans. Why is my doctor's bill so high? Why am I being charged for X, Y, and Z? So this, this kind of questioning I argue, comes out of a, a sort of larger world of of where middle-class Americans are being asked to think like consumers um, and, and to make wise choices and are even being told by experts that that is their duty as an American citizen to get the data and make good choices. Um, and let me tell you, when they start doing that, they see a lot of discrepancies in what they're being offered, how it's being priced. That's in the 1920s. I mean, that same impulse just um, continues to this day where a lot of the pressure um, for transparency, you mentioned prices, uh, the, um, the, the efficacy, like what, you know, what is your hospital's rating for the number of readmits with post-operative infection, all that kind of push to provide more and more data so patients can make better and better choices. It, it was a theory that somehow this is, was going to discipline the medical marketplace and be a quality control mechanism to use a very modern concept. Um, so this idea goes way back in the United States. It's just not very successful. 
um, because there are just so many ways that that project of transparency and demand for information just gets um, cut off at the knees um, in in um, and also directed in a way that preserves the the system rather than encourages it really to do any kind of deep change. Great. Thank you. So at the time of, and you discussed Medicare 1965, the Medicare, Medicaid, the federal programs, social insurance, and then the phrase, and you still hear this phrase today, relative pricing, what's the price? Usual and customary. I mean, you cannot be, mm-hmm. can't be more vague than that. And since yeah, you did cite in your book, Uwe Reinhardt, yeah. uh, the noted Princeton healthcare yeah. economist, one of his favorite lines, and I'll repeat again, I've used this before to make point of the variation in price. His line was, the finest healthcare in the world costs twice as much as the finest healthcare in the world, which was his <laughs> way of saying, you know, it doesn't matter where you're getting it, the prices can vary as much as 100%. Uh, so, absolutely. So I go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, and, and um, so much of the, so, so in terms of how I kind of staged all of these changes, I mean, clearly Medicare and Medicare, okay, the, the, the sort of assumption of federal uh, oversight and funding is, is just a hugely important moment because it forces a standardization in this kind of chaotic process that had um, grown up around uh, when health insurance does start to to become available largely to uh, elite executives and um, union members, uh, this is from the 1940s uh, onward. Um, but again, your your listeners will be very familiar with the the um, the story that the model for Medicare and, Med- and more Medicare than Medicaid. Sorry, that's coughing. That the model for um, Medicare is basically based on private insurance, where the physician and the hospital set the price. Right. I mean, there's that famous anecdote about whoever it was saying to Lyndon Johnson, "Are you aware of how expensive this is going to be?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll deal with that problem down the road." Um, and indeed, um, that. It, it, you know, this is one of the great ironies uh, of American history is how much the AMA fought uh, Medicare, you know, socialized medicine and how quickly medical opposition to this program dissipated when they realized how it was going to uh, contribute to their incomes. Well, right. Utilization went through the ceiling just as much as the Absolutely. not as much as but similar to the ACA utilization yep. Yeah. Certainly relative to Medicaid. Let me um, let let's go to. I did find interesting, and and this was this was a legitimate uh, had ripple effects. So this is uh, let's focus on the books part three. Um, mm-hmm. This is nineteen sixties forward. Let's term then these are termed the patient empowerment efforts or policies. I was particularly interested in your discussion of the seventy three patient bill of rights. Mm-hmm. Um, what did it attempt to accomplish? And, and I think this is a good, ex- in my mind, this was an excellent example of this conversation. Yes. What did it attempt to accomplish yes. and what yes. was its fate? Yes. So the patient bill of rights really comes out of a more radical uh, critique of how healthcare is being offered 
um, to Americans, including Americans from, you know, low income, black Americans, uh, it just really trying to grapple with the, um, the hospital as a power system in which the patient is being treated like, uh, you know, an object and really pushing back against the lack of transparency over everything from how you come in, why you're close or, you know, take it away from you to um, how your bill arrives, um, arrives at, at the end. So it's, it's really um, coming out of uh, human rights. I mean, there's all these influences in that language of, mm-hmm. of a, a real um, uh, attempt to spell out um, the basic parameters to have uh, an ethical doctor-patient relationship, I, I, I would argue. And yet the way it gets taken up is more um, as a, a, um, a window dressing. So mm-hmm. basically the hospitals are going to say, oh, yes, um, we are going to post the patient's bill of rights. Um, they'll put it up on the wall. Um, they'll hand, a, hand you some kind of document when, when you check in. Um, but when an actual problem arises, um, the, the response to the patient criticism or concern may be either non-existent or counterproductive. So there's a huge difference between saying, I believe uh, uh, this hospital observes the patient bill of rights and what they do when their actual problems over issues like quality of care or billing when, when they actually arise. Um, much of this kind of, of uh, 1970s homage to patient rights in the end turns uh, seems to me to be a kind of way for hospitals to cover their um, cover themselves against uh, potential lawsuits. I mean, clearly malpractice is is really shaping um, concerns in this time period because, again, as your listeners know, those those rates are going up. It 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 becomes more a thick leaf um, on the kinds of problems that that complex medical technology is going to create in a hospital setting, very difficult um, to deliver on um, in the kind of vague, vague way that it's, um, that it's worded. Okay. Thank you. I, I did just want to make note that to the extent uh, it's not gamed, but it, it did, it did lead to uh, informed consent. Which I'd say well, on balance, at yeah. least in theory, certainly was definitely uh, uh, necessary. Again, uh, you, uh, you could quibble about how well it's been practiced. Yes, I and and I uh, that's a good parallel in the same time period. Um, and I would be uh, remiss to suggest that I'm against informed consent or patients' bills of rights. I'm mm-hmm. not. What what um, what I'm suggesting is that when you look at how informed consent, for example, works out in practice, um, that it becomes uh, too easily in many settings uh, papers that are signed without actual information or consent uh, of real information or consent being transacted. And again, uh, there's been umpty-ump studies that that have looked at the kind of problems of making the ideal of informed consent um, a reality. Reality, right. It's very, very difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, I'll, I'll just, I, I do want to read this for no other, uh, reason. I, I, I did find certain, uh, passages incredibly refreshing in that they were very blunt. Mm-hmm. So at the end of one chapter in this, uh, part three, by virtue of becoming more prominent players, however limited their actual influence, patient consumers became deeply implicated in policymakers' medical blame game. Even as the image of the dazed and confused consumer remained relevant, the new consumerism, quote-unquote, became a convenient whipping boy for the continued problems of the healthcare economy. Um, I, wanted to ask yeah. the, I, I wanted to ask the patient <laughs> bill of rights question first because essentially what this comes down to is this never-ending tension, and, uh, and you, use, use, you use this phrase, the tension between – professionalism Mm -hmm. and commercialism and then you say Mm -hmm. uh on balance you say the latter one um uh so let's let me so one i think efficient way to phrase this entire conversation is this is this ongoing tension and it became poignant in your in the title of of it's your last chapter it's the chapter before your concluding chapter uh, barbarians and the barbarians at the gate phrase, <laughs> which was actually used by a physician. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I, I mean, it, in many ways, this is probably the saddest book I ever wrote in that the people talking past each other. And, and again, I want to make clear, you probably have physicians on the call. Um, Physicians should not have the black hats put on them, and patients should not have the black mm-hmm. hats put on them. Um, we are in the grips of, of a really complex and difficult um, system. Um, and many physicians um, totally agree that the profession was becoming too monetized and too um, too oriented, especially towards specialism. So it's not like um, there, there were huge divisions within the medical profession, still are, about how the system works. So there were doctors as well as patients saying, this is just not working. I cannot deliver the care I want to. I mean, look at what has happened to primary care um, medicine in, in this country. It mm-hmm. is heartbreaking. Even internal medicine is is gone with the wind. Um, so specialism is like a major part of of this story and how um so i i back up and say it's impossible to say all doctors felt this way about you know patients as consumers there was a lot of variety there that said i think um this image of the uh patient who goes on the internet and and gets information and then comes in and and tries to, you know, practice medicine, uh, or that is how the physician sees it, has become a really convenient whipping uh, person. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's very easy. So if there's such a contradiction. On the one hand, we're told, got to give people better information and they'll make better choices. But then when they go and get information and try to try to insert themselves in decision making where you know they they are easily seen as going off the rails being irrational um and again this is not to say that people doing this kind of research and coming into their doctors aren't ill-informed they could be coming in and saying uh, i think ivermectin will will help me against covid and you know that's that's messed up. Um, but it's it's so um, it's 
I think a lot of uh, doctors and, and patients alike feel that there's just, we can't win, you know, whatever way we go, we're really boxed into this, this, this information, uh, you know, vortex and uh, wow, it's really, I think it's hard for doctors to feel like they can practice good medicine under those conditions. And it's, um, it's hard for patients to feel like they're getting care for it um, as well. Um, Right. Absolutely. And in fact, just to uh, relative to the barbarians at the gate, this is the phrase used by a physician describing how her fellow health providers felt about the prospect that patients would gain <laughs> easier access to their medical records. Yes. Um, you know, I was yes. reminded of, since I've worked this subject for many years, patient reported outcome measures, which are slowly being used increasingly. Uh, there's been a substantial resistance by the medical profession uh, to the use or employment or, or required use of patient reported outcome measures, sort of it falls in line with this uh, sort of thinking. And one of the phrases you use to describe this in the conclusion, the persistent reluctance, reluctance to view the patient as a worthy partner. Um, yes, yes. So we're caught in this, in fact, per your comment about how, dis, how difficult it was to write this book, my conclusion similarly was everybody loses. Yes. Um, well, I think there's some people who are doing quite well with this system. Well, that yeah. another one of my jaded conclusions yeah. is the U.S. healthcare system is very successful at making huge amounts of money for some stakeholders. Is it not? Well, I can't agree more. <laughs> I, I, I was talking. I was outside outside the investment community. Yeah, uh, and and as yeah. you may know, U.S. healthcare is the largest industry in the largest economy yes, in the world. Absolutely. And what trumps yes. that is U.S. healthcare mm -hmm. is half of worldwide healthcare spending, yeah. with four percent of the world's population. Yeah, so yes, yeah. it's extremely yeah. profitable. Yeah. Let let me go uh, to uh, almost obscenely so. Yeah. Oh, and absolutely. I'm, I'm so I'm so I think it's so refreshing how you bring in that global perspective because um, you know at the time I wrote the book I was having enough trouble just writing about the United States but once I published it I started getting invited to go to Europe because basically they don't want to have happened to their systems what has happened in the United States and wow talk about an education about how differently this can work um, mm -hmm. with not all that big a change. Well, no, that that's the wrong way to put it. Um, but that other, other countries have managed to um, make these technological tra transformations without creating such a dysfunctional system. That said, I've also been really struck, especially with COVID, about the global inequities here. Um, that the the way this messes up uh, kind of global healthcare policy, I think, is just really monumental. Well, but that's for another podcast, right? Well, speaking of uh, <laughs> the cost, and since we I quoted Uwe Reinhardt, another Princeton economist, Angus Deaton wrote with um, Anne Case, "Deaths of Despair," and they he's been arguing he's the Nobel Prize winner. Yes, he's yeah. argued uh, repeatedly that. Uh, you know, healthcare is the cause of, because of the premiums, et cetera, is the cause of its, of, it causes its own problems, essentially. Yes. Let me, yeah, absolutely. So the book concludes, the, the conclusion is sobering. 
um, at I, I did find again refreshing your your you begin your conclusion talking about what was been attempted with uh, limited success, and then at one point halfway through your conclusion you write if you if you like happy endings stop reading here. So let's let me ask you about um, what your conclusions are, and that gets that get gets to your opening phrase about uh, what went wrong. Yes. So um, I mean, not nearly as many years as you, but I too had my my kind of uh, time in the healthcare policy. Uh, on on the fringes, at least, because historians, yeah, you know, we're not we're not real major players in in a lot of high level healthcare policy. Perhaps we should be, but we aren't. Um, but I would go to meetings and watch the economists primarily rule, rule the roost with occasional, you know, political science in there, um, and uh, the 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 kind of uh, answers. Um, to how we were going to fix these things always seemed to be, to me, be more hair of the dog that bit us, collect more data, do more analysis, mm-hmm. tweak this, this variable and that variable. Um, and it, it, um, I, I could, uh, so it was basically doing more of, of the same. And the, the same as trying to adjust variables in this incredibly complex healthcare marketplace to make it work better. And if you dare to say, you know, the system is just broken and we, we have to completely redesign it, I mean, that, that's just not what you say in healthcare policy circles. You, you got to make it work. Um, and to challenge the kind of fundamental principles, it just, um, I, I think that that is uh, that that has proven to be a dead end. Um, people, uh, friends of mine, who have like been very involved in the the caps, you know, the consumer assessment health plans, uh, right? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, you know, they put their heart and soul into um, creating that database so it could be easier, safer New Yorkers to pick the right healthcare plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, it doesn't work. Um, the, no matter how much they try to clean up the data and fix it and make it usable, it's just not very consumer friendly. Um, so my sense is we just, not we, but the, the policy world, we just keep revolving around what are the safer solutions, which is trying to fix, you know, what, what we already have. And we're going to stay away with, away from anything more fundamental. Um, I think the only, maybe when I think about, uh, I'm even less optimistic in 2023 than I was when I finished that book in 2016. I mean, what has happened since then? In terms of political polarization in the United States, mm-hmm. climate change problems. I mean, get out. We we are um, the scale of problems of whole society problems we now face um, is is extraordinary. And um, the way we go about making healthcare policy, I, I think, is just too uh, too broken at this point to do anything about it. If you feel otherwise, I would love to. You to tell me something that that would make me more hopeful. Well, I I appreciate you saying that because I was going to try to I will squeeze in now this last question. 
I did notice that in reading your volume, 400 plus pages, (laughs) deeply researched, I mean, really deservedly the Bancroft Prize winner, um, regulators get off almost entirely. Um, You Hmm. you make mention, a brief mention for the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, but most of my policy work over the last decade or two has largely been pointing out what yeah. what federal regulators have failed and continue to fail to do. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. listen to this podcast, um, 40 plus interviews into the climate crisis, and HHS continues to do nothing, even yeah. though healthcare mm-hmm. is about 9% of global, uh, rather U.S. annual greenhouse gas or CO2E emissions. Um, so my question to you is, was was that intentional or is that another book? Or where do, where do regulators come into this? Because obviously well, they have a massive amount of authority, large, most of it mm-hmm. largely unexercised. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, uh, I don't know, deliberately. My sense at the time I wrote that book is there was a lot of high quality work on the regulatory piece of this. Uh, you know, I think of the work of somebody like Dan Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed to me of the issues that were being debated, the problems of regulatory capture and, and those right, sorts of right. issues were getting a lot more attention than the problem of the patient as consumer, that that had just been kind of um, there. Uh, let me tell you, there's just not a lot of, of interest or interest in or, or attention to that as a historical or even a, a contemporary problem. It was just boxed out. So um, it's not that I don't think federal regulation is important, but um, I would go back to what I just said about, I mean, it, it was difficult for regulatory agencies to do their job when uh, before 2016 um, in the current state where uh, of disarray of our political system, um, relying on federal regulation, um, I guess I'm kind of leaning, you know, increasingly more to more and thinking that there's, that's almost a hopeless cause, at least for, for a, a mere historian like me, and that I'm, I'm more thinking about what can I do at the local level that could make some kind of potentially small change that could roll up into a bigger change, uh, you know, around climate activism, for for example. And I'm not talking about recycling. I'm talking right. about what are what are ways that I can pressure my local community, my uh, the state of New York, you know, to uh, to to do stuff and to wake up. Um, so I'd be really, you know, interested as a follow up, just hearing from you and and other people in the policy community about what, if any, of they think of the more local initiatives or even state-level initiatives are worth, you know, even sending them money um, that that might be able to accomplish something. Well, I mean, the government is going to shut down, right, in a couple of days. Um, it's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. But I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so, um, yeah. It's it's a it's a tough one. Of you see the problem, what do you do? It's a wicked problem, and how do you you know how do you respond to wicked problems? It's funny, not funny, but mentioning uh, the failure by the House to move legislation this week. 
I was on the phone with an EPA staffer today, and he said to me, uh, after Saturday midnight, he said, I'm not even allowed to open emails. Yes. So yes, relative yeah. to trying to move yeah. forward, I, I, yeah. I, I do appreciate noting at the local level, um, New York, to its credit, has been comparatively mm-hmm. progressive as it relates to mm-hmm. state Medicaid policies, yes. Uh, yeah. relative to state climate legislation. Um, so I do think you're right at the state level in certain states more than others. Obviously, there's there's opportunity uh, yeah. and more optimism. Uh, yeah. But with that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Professor Times, we're at our time. Um, yeah. Fantastic uh, effort. Interesting read. Well-researched. So I appreciate yeah, this uh, discussion thereof. Um, I hope we could talk and connect uh, down the road again and talk about other related. There's a lot more oh, here to yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. to uh, massage. I'd like that. <laughs> All right. Stay well. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.